The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Adam Toos for the second part of our discussion of his new book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, which is out now from Alan Lane. As always, you can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Pol Theory Other. And if you like the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. The podcast also has a Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Uh, the show is uh, still quite some way from being sustainable long term as a weekly show. So if you are able to make a small monthly donation, it would be much appreciated. You can donate from as little as $1 a month. Adam Toos is Professor of History and Director of the European Institute at Columbia University. His other books include The Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy, which we discussed in episode 14, and also The Deluge, The Great War, America and the Remaking of the Global Order, 1916 to 1931. Yeah, so Adam, I thought we could begin by picking up on something that you said during the first part of our conversation. Um, so you suggested, and, and it's an argument that I'm inclined to agree with, that, that it's, uh, it's perhaps a mistake to give too much credence to the idea of a, of a very sort of massive populist upsurge that's, uh, that's kind of come from nowhere in recent years. Because by doing so, there's a danger of ignoring the degree to which popular attitudes around questions of migration and national sovereignty and, and globalization have actually, you know, substantially carried through from the pre-crisis period into the current conjuncture. Um, so uh, right after the Brexit vote, I remember uh, reading an article by Will Davies where he suggested that the, the Brexit vote should really be seen as both a delayed outcome of the long process of the deindustrialization of the UK economy, uh, but also as a, as a consequence of austerity and the financial crash. Um, so when it comes to the political manifestations of popular discontent, uh, particularly with regard to Brexit, uh, how much weight do you think we ought to give to the financial crisis? Well, I mean, I think one one line to follow uh, would be to focus on um, London. I mean, if you if one thinks particularly about the UK, um, you know, the extraordinary concentration of power and money uh, in London, I think is a is an interesting element of the story that's also quite distinctive. Um, you know, you'd be hard pressed to identify anti-New York sentiment per se uh, in the American story. Uh, Trump is after all nothing if not a, a New Yorker. Hmm. But I think in the UK, one of the connections between 08 and the subsequent unraveling or the subsequent you know, political dynamic is, is a kind of anti-London um, political sentiment, which of course does have a lot to do with the financial crisis in the city. Um, and I think the sense that, you know, London is, um, you know, uh, undergoing a crisis needs bailing out, uh, that it takes all of the benefits, you know, it's, it privatizes, in a sense, it privatizes the, the profits and socializes the losses, um, that famous phrase, but, that, but that, that also has a regional dimension in the UK. I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite an important and an interesting and particular facet of the story on the UK side. Otherwise, I am very much persuaded by the evidence produced by, you know, a variety of different political scientists and economists that the intermediating variable here is austerity. Um, and that, you know, the, the, the um, impact of austerity in the regions of the UK 
Uh, it was, after all, above all, directed at local government spending. Um, that this correlates really quite closely with uh, UKIP and uh, anti-EU anti voting. Um, but that, of course, is not a direct result of the crisis per se. It's the result of the policy response chosen by the Tories within the coalition government to the crisis, justified by them with regard to the Greek um, fiasco of 2010, itself, of course, the product not just of the crisis, pure and simple, but of the European response to it. So it's by it's in those kind of mediated ways that I think that you see the that you see the link, um, the disaffection with the metropolitan elite, which is European cosmopolitan pampered and has failed, and the um, the regional impact of austerity in the UK uh, would be two ways in which I think you could make the connection. So just in terms of uh, the demographics, so w would you perhaps be saying then that uh, the, the sort of relatively affluent homeowning conservative voters who had, who had long been Eurosceptic, um, that that kind of support for Brexit was, 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 was kind of baked in and that uh, it was there even in the 90s and even back to the 80s, but, but, but that it's uh, austerity that, that really flips a part of the working class effectively? Yeah, precisely. So, I mean, clearly... We have to take as a given in the British situation, you know, a, a profound amb ambiguity on both sides of the political spectrum towards Britain's membership in the European project. That's a given. And all we're after all trying to explain is why this small majority at that particular moment, um, you know, emerged. And yes, so what we're talking about here are incremental marginal effects, um, which do indeed relate to longer term trends. Um, uh, of deindustrialization, of the move by the Labour Party under Blair to the centre. But it remains true that Labour voters on the whole in, in the Brexit referendum, of course, don't vote for Brexit. They on the whole vote for Remain. It's just that by that point, such a large slice of the blue collar population or what was once the blue collar population has shifted to UKIP style voting anyway. Um, but yes, this is an incremental additive explanation rather than being in and of itself, by itself, the driver of the entire of the entire um, phenomenon that we're trying to explain. Specifically regarding the Brexit vote, uh, it, it's often said, and, and it's an argument I have, I have some time for, um, that the UK had, had always had a more transactional relationship with the European Union than the UK's uh, continental partners. It had long struck me that, that when, when you would see British prime ministers going to Brussels, that there was this kind of us and them dynamic, uh, even at the best of times. Also, uh, prior to the Brexit vote, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly didn't feel particularly aware of people having any sort of patriotic attachment to the idea of Europe. Uh, uh, particularly and, and the symbols of the European Union, although clearly that was something that, that existed to a greater extent than I perceived. Um, how much do you think that uh, that before the referendum that, that uh, Britain's relationship with the EU was uh, substantially and, and qualitatively divergent from that of other member states? I think... I think you can make the case that you're making. I, I like I like the new version of your story in which you can see that there's at least a minority of Brits who are passionately addicted to symbols <laughs> of, um, which which uh, I think is true. I mean that surely is the story here, which is that of cultural pluralism and um, in that you have um, a substantial body of British public opinion, which exactly as you say is views the EU with suspicion. Um, Views it in purely pragmatic terms, remains passionately committed to uh, the badges of British uh, or English, uh, indeed, uh, nationality uh, harkens back to the imperial age. Um, and uh, that is a reality. And there is a political, there is a bit of the British political spectrum which clearly reflects this. Um, I think probably the single most significant exception to this rule is probably Tony Blair, who of all Britain's recent prime ministers is the one who was surely most clearly committed to Europe and to Europe as a vision of modernization. Not that it meant that it would swamp what Britain was in any way, but that he really did, you know, was quite firmly committed to the European project and would have sign Britain up to the European constitution of the early 2000s, if that had not gone away and blown itself up, would probably, but for Gordon Brown, 
have signed Britain up for the Eurozone as well. Um, and so, you know, that um, is also one of the realities of recent British political history. But certainly um, under Brown, I think, uh, there was a more transactional relationship. Um, my sense is that Brown was much more an Atlanticist uh, than he ever was a European. Does this make Britain qualitatively different from other from other places? I don't think one should... I don't think one should probably exaggerate that. Um, in all European states, there is a substantial body, and I would probably think a growing body, especially of younger people, for whom it, there really isn't any obvious alternative to the EU and who are in various ways networked into the EU um, through things like Erasmus and so on, which is truly a gigantic program for the university-going classes of Europe. Um, but they are a minority everywhere. And, you know, whether you look at old member states like France, where there is, after all, the Gaullist tradition, let alone the new member states like Poland, where there is, you know, a relationship to the EU, which can barely be described as transactional, um, at least in the part of the current government. I mean, Britain doesn't stand out that radically. I mean, it's not that different to Denmark, for instance, which also has a similar kind of position. So... This, that tendency is there. It comes and goes. It depends on which party is governing Britain and which bit of which party is governing Britain. Um, I don't think there is a, you know, I don't think history precludes the possibility of a long term, longer term future in which convergence would have been much more comprehensive. I think the, the, sh the mere fact that the Brexit referendum happened and that we now have to face the reality that we do shouldn't you know, lead us retrospectively to conclude that there was never the possibility of, you know, a gradual absorption of Britain into a much more, much deeper and much more integral conception of Europeanness um, than where we're likely to head now. On the question of European integration, so um, the hope for reform of the European Union at the moment seems to lie uh, very substantially with with uh, the success of Emmanuel Macron's presidency. Um, w one thing I was struck by uh, in the book uh, was was your description of the 2017 vote for Macron as uh, a vote for Europe, um, not for Europe as it stands, but for a new course. And uh, I mean, I have to say, I mean, my my reading of the situation at the time of the vote was was really the, the, quite the opposite. That that uh, that the vote for Macron was was essentially a negative one. Uh, that it was primarily a vote against Marine Le Pen, and that any of the other candidates would have defeated Le Pen had they got through to the second round. Um, and opinion polling for for Macron since the election does does seem to bear that out. I mean, he's currently languishing in the same you know sort of uh, high twenties uh, where Francois Hollande found himself at the same stage of his presidency. Um, so, do you think there's there's more popular support for the Macron project than I'm perceiving? Um, I don't think that I don't think that Macron's difficulties have got to do with his conception of. Though it clearly doesn't help that the German response to his proposals has been as niggardly as it has been. Um, the, I think the reason for the collapse in his public his support amongst the French public is, is um, his domestic reform program. Mm. Uh, what, you know, what he would call his domestic reform program. Um, and I think that's what you know, has, has created the sense that fundamentally he's a president of the rich. Um, that he's a president of French business and that he is essentially a, a you know, a right wing president in disguise, a pro market neoliberal um, uh, uh, force fundamentally. Now, I think Macron would probably argue that you can't separate one from the other. You can't separate, you know, his European vision from his demand that France turn over its domestic, social and political system, its domestic, social and economic system. So as to be more, quote unquote, competitive and to meet German demands for reform and so on and so forth. I mean, I think that's probably his profound conviction that the two things go together. Um, that, I think, is a mistake on his part. Um, and I, you know, counterfactually, because we, we're, we're not in that scenario, but counterfactually, a Macronite presidency that was more status quo at home and more... Um, transformative in Europe and was successfully delivering that package, I think would probably be more popular in France than he currently is. Right now, he's in the worst of all worlds 
and that he can't get anything done in Europe effectively because of the German situation. And he's nevertheless pushing ahead with painful domestic changes, which are not surprisingly costing him support. This doesn't seem to be, I mean, this this is obviously isn't simply a French phenomenon. I mean, the, the belief that you can pursue European integration along neoliberal lines is still hegemonic within uh, EU institutions. Um, I mean, do, do you have any sense that this may change at some point and that the realisation that you can't achieve integration uh, through these means might become apparent to them? I mean, in fairness to Macron, I think he probably thinks that if you can do one great push, if you like, of quote unquote reform in France, that having done that, you can then stabilize Europe as the, you know, l'Europe qui protège, you know, the, the Europe that protects. But to get to the point where Europe is something that protects, you have first to do all these domestic changes. So he may have a kind of stage model in mind of how you know, you you undergo these drastic domestic changes so as then to put yourself in a position of, you know, long-run sustainability in which Europe can then be that protecting force that people want it to be. I think that, in fairness to him, is how he probably imagines the sequence going. Um, Well, I mean, I, I always come back to, as an alternative to actually answer your question, I mean, the reality in Germany right now is, in fact, you know, though they are maintaining this fiscal surplus, they're able to do so because the economy is ticking over quite nicely mm-hmm. uh, and the labor market is very tight. But in terms of, you know, a whole variety of different measures, um, it's not as though they're rolling back, you know, Hart's fear and the, re- the so-called reforms of the early 2000s. But there's no big German, as it were, push right now for, you know, deepening market reform or something like that. And if you look in if you look in Portugal, there's after all a reasonably successful experiment suggesting that at least as long as the ECB maintains its bond buying, there's actually quite a lot of wiggle room in the EU right now. I mean, we're not in a world of you know, hard driving austerity um, in Europe at this moment. Um, the, the, the real pain was delivered in the period 2011 to 2013. And you know, the, the, that adjustment was made and we're now living, as it were, in the aftermath of that. Um, so I can't, I'm not saying that any radical new vision has emerged with the possible exception of Portugal, but I also uh, don't see really that there's, you know, any major area right now where, of, of a country undergoing a new program of deepening, you know, product market and labor market liberalization. There's certainly nothing mm. immediate to mind so so when we spoke last we we talked about the the disastrous response of the eu institutions to the european banking crisis um uh, and, and you argue in the book that because of that failure europe has really sort of relegated itself to an increasingly subordinate position in the global economy which as you point out is is pretty ironic given uh, the degree of, of schadenfreude that there was towards the americans in the early phase of the financial crisis uh, amongst european elites the common sense seems to be to to still view the german economy as as, as very uh, robust um but as you've pointed out the areas in which the german economy remains competitive is is really in sort of legacy industries so it's uh, it's cars it's machine tools it's chemicals and and so on Whereas the, the, the real uh, centers of innovation, um, whether in uh, information technology or, or in finance, are in the United States and, and increasingly in Asia. Um, do you see this situation as, as one that can be reversed? And, and what does that, uh, that relative decline mean for the viability of, of the European Union and the Eurozone? Well, I mean, I, I, this is an important point for me. I, in the first instance, I have to say that I meant it. I meant it. Historically, so you know that rather than looking forward, though the temptation is always to look forward, mm-hmm. uh, the question was really, you know, what do we think actually happened after two thousand and eight? And um, you know, the, the, it is obvious, I think, uh, that there was a, disa- a social, uh, socio-economic disaster for the eurozone in the sense that an entire generation of young people in southern Europe had their starts into the workplace aborted, essentially, and this is a disaster of the first order. And, and a huge scandal. And you can understand why this energizes a new left-wing politics. And it's an important new left-wing politics to which I'm profoundly sympathetic. But 
what I was trying to point out was that uh, one shouldn't transpose to the Eurozone the logic uh, which we've you know, derived from the United States, where in a sense that pain suffered by millions of ordinary Europeans, ordinary in the sense of working Europeans or not working, unemployed Europeans, is in a sense the price that was paid to benefit European capital. Mm. I mean, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a deep temptation to imagine um, that is it, one, is the, one is the price uh, that was paid to produce the benefit for another. Um, and this isn't to say that European business suffered in the same way. It's simply to point out the scale of the disaster, which is that it's very difficult to point to anyone who substantially benefited from the, the, these profoundly misguided policies. So rather than thinking of them as the work of a self-interested European elite bent on maximizing profit accumulation on the part of European business, um, which is a pretty decent explanation, say, of the Hartz IV changes in Germany at the beginning of the 2000s, and the pretty good explanation of the basic political logic of the American bailout strategy, which is specifically targeted at restoring the viability of American financial capitalism, regardless, essentially, of the price. Um, if the price is low, great. If the price is high, it needs to be paid anyway. That logic just simply doesn't apply in the Eurozone. And what we have missed is, in a sense, the very severe implication of that, which is that Europe may take very long time um, to recover from the impact of the crisis, if indeed ever it, it manages to do so, because we are in a fiercely competitive global economic situation right now with several major technologies undergoing dramatic changes and with a shift in leadership in the world economy, which is spectacular. And if you look at the relative standing of European business in the early 2000s and its relative standing now, it's extremely concerning. Um, if, you, if, you, if you regard you know, large capitalist businesses as key to the dynamic of global competition. And so it does seem to me that at this respect, Europe is left facing a pretty serious choice, which is just another expression of the same choice, which is at the core of any critical understanding of the financial crisis, which is, are Europe's big businesses too big for us to allow them to fail? And not in the sense of banks failing, but in the sense of you know the classic tropes of industrial policy. I mean, even if we don't own them and even if they contribute to massive inequality, are they nevertheless necessary to secure the autonomous viability of the European economy into the coming decades? And by that, I mean things like control over key technologies or at least some say in control over key technologies going forward or, you know, high paying, high productivity jobs or sources of major tax revenue for European governments. So... It seems to me really tempting for Europe right now to retreat into a position which says, you know, our good politics in Europe consists of hounding, you know, big American tech companies and forcing them to pay tax and respect data protection laws. And you can see why that's an attractive politics. Um, the question is, to me, why don't we have any big tech companies of our own? And if we did, what would be the politics of regulating them? Because it's relatively easy to regulate American tech companies, which simply don't have the leverage in the EU that they do have at home. Hmm. But what is the downside of being in a position like that? Um, and that, to me, are the, those to me are the questions that, that need to be that need to be addressed. Um, and it's essentially a question of industrial policy, uh, which you know in Britain is the bread and butter of a certain sort of leftism, has been ever since World War II. And I think that question needs to be posed for the Eurozone as well. Uh, and it needs to be posed about the crisis, right? The crisis, given that it was as bad as it was, if you, if you, if you read it in the Keynesian way that I'm proposing, in other words, that this was a lose-lose, not a win-lose, but a lose-lose proposition, then we have to deal with both sides of the loss. Of course, we have to you know, be sensitive to and understand the political fallout from the disaster that befell millions of people. But we also need to be thinking about the consequences for uh, European capital, not because we you know we love European capitalists, but because in one way or another, better or worse, our fates are entangled with theirs. 
Yeah, I mean, this brings me on actually to some of the reviews that the book has had, uh, in particular reviews from from people on the left. Um, I mean, I wonder if you think that that sort of that inattention to to that dynamic uh, that you describe, where it, it's uh, not a situation where the policies being pursued are of uh, obvious benefit to capital. Um, do you think that's kind of fed into some of the criticism that you've received from from the left? Um, I mean, in particular, I'm thinking of, of Aditya Chakraborty's review in The New Statesman, where he suggested that the book is, is lacking in terms of properly apportioning blame, um, in terms of those uh, who caused the crisis, but also the response of governments uh, after the crash that, uh, that pushed the costs onto uh, the, the general public. I thought that was a really interesting review. I, I subsequently had uh, uh, we had coffee together because I, I was so so tickled by it um, and provoked by it, of course. Because um, uh, this isn't, I mean, and this goes back to what I was just saying. This is not a Marxist book. Uh, this is mm. a Keynesian book in its politics. Um, uh, Arditya compares the book, you know, unfavorably to the works of E. P. Thompson, Eric Hobsbawm, and C. Wright Mills, mm. and uh, I just, you know, um, uh, let me count the ways in which this is not the same kind of work as theirs. Um, it, it emphatically isn't. Um, I don't make any apology for that, but I think it's telling that he should invoke those as comparisons and then ask himself why this isn't that kind of book. Um, I, I, I certainly, I certainly think that uh, the position I'm, I'm adopting um, implies. You know, the possibility of positive sum solutions, which the left in various, you know, more militant poses might want to exclude the possibility of. Right. There is a rallying force. There is a mobilizing potential in a zero sum kind of logic, uh, which I appreciate the force of. And in the American context seems to me to be highly apposite. But um, and in the, and the British be- context as well. It may even be more relevant in the British context, but just doesn't seem to be particularly pertinent in the case of the Eurozone. Mm. And it did strike me that Aditya's comments really resonated with a British discourse, which I'll frankly admit I'm quite remote from. Um, Writing from the vantage point of the United States and concentrating a big portion of the book squarely on the Eurozone, the, the question of doing full justice to the crimes of George Osborne was not really high on my list of priorities. Um, that really isn't the main impetus of the book. Um, and, uh, but I, I, so, and I, and nor, nor can I say that I sort of share the, I think he was particularly struck by the sense that I'm not angry. Um, and I find it hard to imagine that the policymakers in the Eurozone that, could really feel that this was a tame book. It's not, it's a pretty fierce criticism, I think, of their actions. It's not Mm. a criticism from below. It's not a criticism which starts from, you know, asserting a solidarity or empathy with the victims of their policies. Emphatically, I don't feel, frankly, really personally entitled to claim that kind of identification, given my, you know, extremely comfortable and privileged position that I'm you know, fortunate to occupy outside the outside Europe, working in a private university. I mean, I that just isn't. I'm, I don't feel entitled to it, and I don't feel that I can really credibly represent that. I document it. I document its consequences in political action, and the argument, in the manner of a Keynesian argument, is is an attempt to call those elite decision makers to account um, in technical terms for the choices that they made and to demand that they consider the consequences um, and to make those consequences as you know, vivid as I'm able to do with the, with the limitations of my, of my prose and my analytical capacity. So, you know, obviously the project is radically different from that of an Anglo-Marxism or an E.P. Thompson, um, you know, who, who is, a, you know, is, a, is, a, is an extraordinary path-breaking social historian of the, of the English working class and so much more than just a social historian, but that's you know, that's an obviously a radically different project. And it did, in reading that review, I did feel um, just just quite, um, not alienated exactly, but I felt the distance that separates me and separated me in writing the book from um, 
some of the some of the the turmoil, agony, and rage that has clearly uh, and quite justifiably be generated in in the United Kingdom, and that in a sense. Um, you know, one has to understand probably better than I probably do to really understand, um, you know, the inner logic of what drives various types of protest, uh, political protest in Britain right now. I mean, that's what our digi does for a living. That's his entire mission. His reporting on, you know, the situation mm. in British local government and so on is extraordinary and shocking. Um, so, no, I'm, 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 I'm conscious of that. I'm conscious of that gap. And, um, I will say that the book starts and it started quite, you know, self-consciously by pointing out that this will indeed be the project of the book. Uh, and I think, hmm. you know, um, I mean, it says that this book will perhaps come across as cold hearted. I mean, he calls the book bloodless. I would like to think it was more cold blooded than bloodless. Um, but um, I'm, I'm certainly I think this is a this is obvious, obviously a, a fundamental problem with this kind of analysis of this kind of problem. Um, it's it's an unapologetically top down account of uh, certain sorts of decision making and their logic mm. um, and in no way precludes the possibility of writing other types of account of this same project and certainly shouldn't be seen as you know, making any kind of claim to totality or monopoly of representation of this issue. I mean, it's, it's so very far from being that, that I feel it's almost unnecessary to say it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can sort of imagine that one could make the same criticism of, of wages of destruction, right? I mean, you, you know, there is something horrific in its kind of, uh, you know, cold-eyed overview of the, the mechanics and the, the logistics of the Holocaust. Um, and, and, and as in this case, you know, you're, you're not really talking about the experiences of the, of the, uh, of the victims per se. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, that that obviously doesn't preclude other, you know, work in, 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 in that, that area. No, exactly. And, and the, the, the continuity in my work is it's an analytic of logics of power and, and, and the illogic and logic of power, right? That's the continuous theme. My first book was about the history of statistics. It doesn't get much more <laughs> than that. And that is my métier. If I was, you know, if, if I was other wired differently, I might have become an anthropologist or, you know, and one of the brands of social or cultural history that descend from that. But but that's not that's not my métier. It's not my preoccupation. Um, all of the counterfactuals questions I ask myself are about you know what would you have been if you had been you know take your pick Mario Draghi or Reinhard Heydrich. Like I don't I don't when you know when one engages in the sorts of counterfactual you know speculation that historians have to engage in when you are trying to understand the logic of actors. Um, you know, that's where my mind runs. And it's not, you know, I, I mean, I take my materialism seriously enough to not find that particularly puzzling given my upbringing and my class background and, you know, my, my occupation. Uh, you know, I've spent my entire life essentially in elite education training people who, you know, by all probability will end up um, in various types of managerial, professional, functionary type position, right? That's, that's the entire ecotope I inhabit. Um, and it's all I really know fundamentally. Um, and, and that's what I try to explore in these books. And they all have that same basic logic, right. Of trying to understand the way in which power makes sense of itself, rationalizes itself and how those projects succeed and fail. I mean, this isn't even really an economic book, right? It's not really an economic history in the sense that it's not attempting to actually start with the primary data and run a model and produce, you know, my particular explanation. I mean, what it is, is a sifting of expert discourse, a shuffling, a rearrangement of expert discourse in which I'm prioritizing the emergence of one particular type of technocratic expertise and then feeding that back into a process of narrative construction and seeing what kind of story you end up with. You know, I seize on this theme of macro finance and then make that work for me to see what kind of narrative I can produce. Now, that's the that's the logic of this kind of of this kind of book. It's not an Orwellian, you know, bottom up, um, you know, uh, uh, thick description of 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 social reality. Um, I mean, that would require completely different talents than than mine, and it would require completely different 
a completely different approach. The virtue of what I'm doing, insofar as it has virtues, is that it that from the vantage point that I'm adopting, you know, it, it is the place from which the maps are made. It is the place from which the systems are constructed as systems. And if one has a kind of if one has a fundamental preconception that we inhabit a world in which abstract, complex, massive uh, entities like that matter, they're not, they don't matter to the exclusion of all else, but if they matter in any way, then this kind of vantage point is presumably useful because um, it takes you, you know, you take you mainline in to the mechanisms through which those kind of systemic interdependencies are constructed. And of course, they're full of people, and some of those people have subjectivities which are interesting. Um, but uh, and one has to take account of those and the stories that those actors construct. Uh, but that is that's evidently the, the the you know the the consistent thread running through 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 all of these all four of these books um, is is that is that kind of approach to power and its logic. So uh, so we shouldn't hold our breath on your takedown of George Osborne then. Well, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> do do I really need to add anything <laughs> to the critiques of British austerity? I mean, seriously, like, <laughs> like talk about like whatever it is, flaying a dead horse. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I thought that the most. I thought that the most. The kind of the most cutting thing, the most cutting point I was making about. George Osborne was that he didn't invent austerity, right? I I thought the most, you know, the most, from his point of view, like probably most painful thing that I said, and I understand that this is not the sort of pain that Aditya would like to see inflicted, Mm -hmm. but like I think that the most, you know, the historical point I was making was that the Germans started it with the debt break and the Germans themselves are echoing the austerity politics of the 1990s. And one of the things I don't like and don't appreciate about the British discussion of austerity is it's parochial. You, you Reading it, one would imagine as that the Tories invented it. And there's actually, much as I really like Simon Wren Lewis's stuff, I think in his work as well, there is a tendency to posit the UK as a lead elephant. Mm. And in the G20 process, the, the, the UK is not entirely irrelevant. But if austerity, you know, it has its most salient politics in the Eurozone, the UK is completely irrelevant to the story. The story, the story that matters is Germany and the debt break. Um, and the debt break story itself goes back, as I was saying, to the politics of non- non-discretionary fiscal policy in the early 2000s and the 1990s. So, you know, <laughs> and th- so that, that I think is the, the point I would like to emphasize. If I have anything significant to say about it, it's this negative statement that Britain really, you know, it doesn't even matter in being a driver of austerity politics. It's 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 a pretty small piece of the of the, of the story. Um and uh, anyway, so that would that would be my tuppence on that issue. Well, I'm I'm more than happy to add uh, an originality to George Osborne's charge sheet. Um, just going back to Keynesianism, so so just the other day I read your review of of Jeff Mann's book on Keynes. Uh, in the long run, we're we're all dead. And uh, I, I, I sort of I noticed reading your work that um, it, it's not entirely obvious what your politics are uh, from from reading your books, and and so. Uh, as I read, I sort of try and try and decipher what what your politics uh, might might be. Um, and reading that review, I was I was struck by your description of Keynes as as somebody who was uh, sympathetic to socialists, to to advocates of radical and even even revolutionary change, um, but that he was nonetheless someone who accepted the uh, the Burkean critique of the French Revolution and uh, you know believed that uh, the grievances that caused the revolution might have been very real and legitimate. But uh, but the revolution inevitably leads to to disaster, um, and uh, obviously that you know on that basis Keynes you know is is obviously more of a reformist. Um, would you say that's where you would uh, position yourself as as a, as a Keynesian and perhaps a left Keynesian? Yes, I think so. I mean, I find the Burkean bits of Keynes the least persuasive. Hmm. Um, um, and hearing you just, you know, reiterate those words to me makes me realize, you know, that, that that's actually quite a strong uh, uh, sense on my part that that uh, I don't. And if you read Deluge, you'll see that the bit about Keynesianism that I find most difficult to deal with is precisely his gallophobic uh, position. I mean, Keynes was was contemptuous towards 
um, uh, Clemenceau, and I think contemptible in his ignorance about Clemenceau's politics. Um, and it's precisely the kind of Oxbridge high table europhobia that mm. uh, I personally find uh, profoundly uh, hard to digest. So what I mean when I say, and I, this is a really helpful clarification, thank you for forcing this point. What I mean when I say that I you know, identify my politics as essentially that of a kind of liberal Keynesianism or a left Keynesianism um, is not that element, but the element which uh, insists on you know, this Machiavellian need to understand the boundaries between the political and the unpolitical, the political and the economic, but not just that boundary, as malleable and the, the you know the metapolitical conversation about what is and what isn't governed and how it is and how it isn't governed needs to be a fundamental element of modern politics so that the 19th century kind of uh, you know sort of ossification the 19th century stabilization of those boundaries uh, and the attempt to set them in stone is is you know a recipe for disaster fundamentally um, so that is that is uh, that is where I would personally situate my own my own politics as a sort of left Keynesianism, which which is which um, which just doesn't feel uh, feel that it can be aligned with uh, uh, straightforwardly aligned with uh, with the left, but which um, nevertheless recognises the force of its critique of existing circumstances. Um, so no, that's really helpful, actually, and very thought-provoking. Uh, the the Burkean element, which which uh, is core to Jeff Mann's interpretation of Keynes, uh, and I think quite correctly so, and does have inside it this you know kind of profound hostility to the temptation of revolution and dramatic violent uh, political upheaval. Um, regardless of, of Keynes's francophobia, is, is, is that belief that revolution sort of inevitably terminates in disaster, is, is that a core part of why you're not inclined to identify yourself with the Marxist tradition? I'm not sure, I'm not sure that it plays that, you know, that, that radical extension um, really plays much, should play a, a much part in our thinking about present day political circumstances. I mean, what relevance does it have to our situation? Hmm. It, that seems to me to be, you know, and, and, and think of the examples which are commonly, commonly summoned up, the French Revolution of the 18th century, the, Russia, the revolution in the most backward large European state of the early 20th century, and the revolution in China, uh, all of which are dramatic. And in the Chinese case and in the French case, you know, were part and parcel of dramatic state building processes in the Russian case, of course, as well, too, um, all of which had huge historical efficacy, despite the violence that was involved in them. But I think probably I'm sympathetic to the, you know, if, if the question is put and is forced, though I see it, I don't see what conceivable relevance it has to our circumstances in Western Europe today or in the United States today. But if the if the question was forced, I think probably my sympathy would be with, you know, German social democrats in 1918, 1919, who simply, you know, faced with the choice of, you know, struggling with some sort of reformist project in the Weimar Republic, or, um, you know, the 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 even in Germany at the time, the fantasy essentially of a Russian-style revolution just argued that the structural conditions in Germany were fundamentally different. And that, and that, therefore, you know, a, a project of upheaval of that type was irrelevant. But it doesn't, you know, it's very hard for me to see what relevance that really has in our present circumstances in the West. That line of thought. What does I think fundamentally ought to preoccupy us is this question, you know, of, of the boundary between the political and the non-political, um, which which Keynesian politics within the liberal tradition allows you to make flexible. Uh, in a way which then allows it to be in dialogue with various brands of reformist socialism. Mm. Um, and that, I think, would be the important legacy, not the, you know, a, a set of questions about revolution, which you can see the pertinence of if you're Keynes writing in 1918 or 1919, but I don't think we should detain ourselves very much with them in the present, unless what you're trying to do is make sense to China, uh, where, of course, you know, the legacy is still absolutely live and they live within a state structure profoundly shaped by the success of the Communist Party in its long struggle for power there. Although, as, as you point out, it's the, it's, the, it's the Keynesian state par excellence, right? Well, that, you see, that, 
that I think might be the that that might be you know the way that that thought was headed is precisely if you want to actually see a state for which that logic of containing revolution and in just the imaginary of revolution, the, this sense of themselves as being situated in a process in which revolution is still a significant phenomena, all of that applies to China in a way that it simply doesn't apply, I don't think, at this point to many other places in the world even. So so on that question of, of the shifting boundaries of, of the political and the economic, um, uh, that makes me think of the Corbyn project in the UK. Um, uh, obviously, the the prospects for the UK economy outside the EU seem seem pretty bleak. Uh, a lot of the media is very much putting forth that line that, uh, that this will just be a complete disaster, and will will relegate the UK economy to to a, to a peripheral status. Um, I, I realise it's not an area that you've looked at very closely, but but what is your view of what Brexit is likely to mean for the UK, and uh, specifically what the prospects you think might be under under a Labour government led by uh, Jeremy Corbyn? To, to me, one of the lessons of the entire crisis, right, that is that if, if it's not true that, gov- that markets govern themselves and govern the world as Greenspan so glibly, you know, uh, uh, claimed in 2007, that cuts both ways. I mean, it, it, it means clearly that um, they need governing at moments of crisis. And it also means that they don't absolutely constrain radical projects. It's just, it's, you know, it's not plausible to argue that, you know, as radical as Brexit is, and as self mutilating as it is, that it will immediately lead to an economic crisis, which will be if you like the divine punishment of the great governing force of markets on the British people for having made such an appallingly stupid choice. I mean, much as I would like that to be true in this case, it just isn't with a moderately effective central bank policy and with the willingness to allow the sterling to depreciate and the willingness, if necessary, to cushion whatever other fallout there is as it comes along, this need not be, you know, a show-stopping disaster, full stop. It might, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. It will undoubtedly reduce British GDP, reduce gross prospects, reduce foreign investment, all those things, but it doesn't have to be the end of the world. It wasn't the end of the world. I mean, the Remainers argued it would be world in 2016, then it really wasn't. There was a huge shock to sterling. There were some big shocks to global financial markets, but the instruments that we used to control 2008 and its aftermath were easily adequate to dealing with the fallout from, easily adequate to dealing for the fallout from Brexit, right? So at that level, you, you cannot consistently maintain the position that I do and maintain the belief that, that Brexit is necessarily the end of the world. Um, and as I said in the LRB review that you quoted, like there is a Keynesian side to the Brexit position, which, much as I may be unsympathetic to it, is a completely legitimate, I think, construal of a Keynesian position. It authorizes a Lexit position precisely because it insists on the malleability of markets. It insists on the complete legitimacy of a politics, which insists that everything essentially ought to be up for grabs. And there's no reason why we can't govern any particular aspect of reality if we set our minds to it intelligently, right? And mobilize the political condition, uh, coalitions that are necessary. So mm-hmm. I can't, you know, I, I'm not going to, and that, that much as I would like to say that, you know, divine wrath will descend on, on, uh, in the event of, a, you know, a Brexit. I just don't think it's, it's not true. Um, and also I think that central bankers like, uh, uh, are quite capable of cushioning the effects. And um, would, would, do you think that would still be the case, even if uh, we were talking about a hard Brexit where the UK effectively falls out of the EU without a deal? No, I mean, it, it would be terrible. A hard Brexit will be a disaster in lots of different ways. Uh, it will lead to a sudden collapse of various types of trade. There's no question. Um, but if there is an energetic national domestic economic policy response, you know, of course, it should be, well, one should be able to cope with it. Rich societies like Britain surely have the resources to cope with even that. Um, so, you know, that, it, it, but it will be terrible and it will be a, you know, absurd waste of time. And, you know, the long-term prospects are very bad. And given the global competitive situation right now, you can't afford to lose time, you know, spending 10, 15, 20 years sorting out what the hell anyone thought they were doing with Brexit is not what you want to be doing at this particular moment in the history of the world economy. So, um, but it will not necessarily lead to an immediate disaster. And it follows from this that if, you know, a well-organized, concerted, intelligent uh, policy push by a radical Labour Party uh, 
aggressively insisting that they get the cooperation to which they're entitled from key agencies of the state, including the Treasury and the Bank of England, uh, that such a government could, if necessary, um, if, it cho- if it chose and it had the, uh, the political backing that it would need to mobilize, it could, I have no, no doubt, uh, uh, implement certain elements of a radical program. It's certainly in a far better position to do so than the Greeks or the Portuguese were because it isn't in the Eurozone. And the Bank of England does give the UK a considerable amount of autonomy on the absolutely key variables of economic policy. So again, one can't, one can't in, by any means rule that out. I mean, what one would have to expect is, of course, a vicious backlash from conservative opponents and the entire media machine that they can organize. One would have to expect obstruction of various types. You know, these are scenarios that were played through endlessly on the part of the British left in the 1970s and 80s. So none of this is new. It's all very familiar. Mm. Um, And the question really is whether under the current circumstances, you know, what kind of coalitions you could build with various types of more or less progressive bureaucrat to ensure that this wasn't you know, basically cut off at the knees by various types of obstruction. But, you know, with regard to the period of the 1970s, the British military is, you know, nowhere near the kind of force that it used to be uh, as a reactionary bastion in British society and British politics. Now, it's not even obvious to me that British, you know, the managerial class any longer constitutes the kind of bedrock of opposition that it might once have been. Um, So, social cultural modernization has in various ways on the end of the cold war has in various ways created conditions that are quite different from what they were in the 70s and 80s but we know you know there's no question about how vicious the british media is uh, how how deep and die hard the resistance from certain segments of society can be expected to be but you know with those provisos and and with that clearly in view i don't see why um, various elements of a program of industrial policy of a quite assertive type shouldn't be realized. Indeed, it seems to me that, you know, this is where I, you know, would kind of take, not umbrage is not the right word, but where I just feel slightly misunderstood by being told, by being, you know, saying that the message of crashed is in no way radical. I mean, it doesn't perhaps have the atmosphere of a radical tract, but if you take seriously the situation I'm describing there, and all I'm doing is just giving an account of where very mainstream economics is right now. We have the tools for turning macro prudential management of the banking system in a radical direction. It's a question of political will and technical nous and tactics, like picking the right moment, picking the right victims, and then going after them in a concerted way. But there's really no reason why the incredible armory of macro prudential regulation that's been put in place since 2008 couldn't be given really quite a radical direction. Um, it cries out for it, to be honest, because it mm. completely lacks political legitimacy in its current form. It's not like you know any of them can really in any straightforward say why they have the claim that they do on public attention and you know why it is that banks operating in the way they do should you know become the object of this kind of um, essentially sort of government security policy to ensure that they really don't screw up again and they really don't fail. I mean, there are much more radical things that one could choose to do with them, even than what the British did, which is considerably more radical than what happened in the United States. So uh, in terms of, you know, the firewalls between different bits of banking business and so on. I mean, 2008 could still be recuperated in that sense for a radical program. I, I don't see why, why, why. I mean, in fact, I've had inquiries so and I just haven't had time to really follow up on them. Um, from people in the in in the Labour team saying, could we have a chat about what all this means for industrial policy? And of course, I'm more than available for that conversation. I mean, but but um, so so I think the answer is Brexit will be terrible. It need not be a show-stopping. You know, it need not be a immediate fatal heart attack type disaster. It depends on on how government machinery is organised. And yes, that could indeed be directed in a more progressive direction by the right kind of government. These are quite a lot of provisos, of course, but nevertheless, with those provisos, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. So this was intended to be the end of the interview with Adam, but uh, we ended up chatting for a little while longer on the topic. So I thought I'd include the remainder of the of the conversation. In the next section, Adam responds after I mentioned that I felt I ought to have pointed out that the uh, critical moments in some of the reviews that the book has had uh, from the left have, uh, have otherwise been, been very uh, laudatory. I cannot complain about my reviews. No, I mean, the conversation with Chakrabarti, I mean, he's absolutely right. I mean, like, it isn't a Marxist book. What I really find surprising is the premise. I mean, and, you know, I find myself on Twitter lists of comrades that all socialists ought to read. And, <laughs> uh, 
I mean, I mean, I'm happy, of course. I mean, and some of my best friends are Marxists, and I spend an awful lot of time reading Marxism. Mm. But, but that's, you know, I'm going to do a post. Actually, you'll see it go up. I, that's what I was doing before we spoke about the, the Jeff Mann review and the broader context of it. Because what I love about Jeff's book is that he reads Keynes from a Marxist perspective and places, you know, Italian Marxism and so on, Negri basically in dialogue with mm. his reading of, of Keynes and so on. And I find I feel myself precisely in that same space, but I bend the stick in the other direction. Mm. So, you know, my view is that liberalism, if it, you know, if it wants to take itself seriously in the, in the 20th century, has to engage with Marxism because it is, it is, it's by, you know, it's, it's by far and away the most profound criticism that liberalism has received from any quarter. And so if, if we're to be intellectually honest and politically serious and not to engage in bad faith, we have to engage with that. And I'd be perfectly happy for you to, to put this in the podcast. We we have to engage with that with that critique, um, because that's what we learn most from. You know, technical economics of the type that you know crashed is drawing on, and that kind of social theory are you know the ways in to really understanding the circumstances that we that we have to deal with. And and what and what you know what Jeff does is to say, as a radical, I can't detach myself from Keynes because. Keynes embodies a kind of crisis fighting logic, which we simply can't do without. Mm. And my read would be kind of the reverse. In other words, as a liberal, I can't really, as a liberal, I'm fully committed essentially to the Keynesian project, but I can't, I can't detach myself from the force of the radical critique, which has been directed against it for 150 years. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to play stupid. I'm not going to pretend that I don't understand the force of those arguments. Why should one? You know, uh, that that's like burying your head in the sand. I mean, once you've read Marx's state theory, how can you ever think the same again about liberal politics? You have to take that kind of argument seriously. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is uncharitable to, to liberals, but, but my suspicion as to why you find uh, Marxists trying to claim you for one of their own is, is because, um, uh, you know, for, for me anyway, it, it's very unusual to encounter liberals at the moment who have a, a properly materialist analysis of uh, the situation. Um, I mean, it seems to be particularly the case with uh, with centrist journalism in the UK, Um and uh, yeah, so so many centrist journalists seem to have this kind of belief that you can somehow magically return to the pre-crisis situation, and and that more or less the same centre-left politics could be viable, um, even though uh, the material support for that kind of politics has clearly vanished. So yeah, I think I think it's it's probably unusual to encounter someone who self-identifies as a liberal, but who who does have that proper engagement with the material reality, and who understands that there's no way of going back to that pre-crisis situation it's you know certainly not in any simple direct way yeah no i mean i i that's one of the things i like about Keynes is that like his liberalism is founded on his materialism in a funny kind of way <laughs> and in a sense like what else could you possibly be but but um but on the other hand that should then also clearly you know give you a, a distinct sense of your marginality i mean uh, or, or the peculiarity of your position. I mean, I think this is another thing that is really attractive about his politics is that it's founded on a reasonably, you know, it's not a detailed sociology or necessarily one whose whose culture one necessarily really wants to, you know, uh, share because it's a it's a it's at times a patrician elitist kind of sociology mm. that Keynes uh, mobilizes. But um, but the materialist self awareness itself, I find very compelling. And, and I should say, and I mean this critically, um, what I find really difficult to understand is how people whose objective class circumstance clearly market, demarcates them as being in the position of, you know, a petty bourgeois or some other form of, you know, functionary managerial class, where exactly how exactly a radicalism is founded on that, what exactly it will be founded on and, and what, you know, other than essentially a kind of, uh, uh, well, it could be based on like family affiliations or whatever else in a society of social mobility, you can understand how those stories would play out. But, mm. but I, it's precisely because I take a certain sort of sociology quite seriously that I find it really difficult to, to, in, to engage in a politics of, what would, you know, once upon a time have been class treachery and, and once upon a time when there were large 
mass parties, class treachery was a pathway that made some sense. And in fact, in my family, it has a certain sort of history. But um, in the current circumstance, what on earth would it mean? I mean, it's essentially a kind of patronizing identification with people whose experience you don't share and whose experience is, is very marginally mediated with yours. It's very difficult to see how one in fact strikes that bridge. And that, of course, is a tragic circumstance of our situation, but I don't and, and, and regrettable, but I don't find, I don't find, you know, I'm not, I don't really quite see how that bridge is supposed to work. So, um, you know, so that's, that's part of, for me, a, a big part of, of what, of what defines this, uh, of what makes this position plausible and other sorts of positions really just for me personally, untenable. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you really like the show, uh, please do consider donating to the Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Poll Theory Other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.